Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Your starter for 10. What is the rule of six? What are the national tiers of risk from one to three? And where can you dine indoors and where can you dine outside? Fear not. We're not going to quiz you about the increasingly Byzantine government laws and guidance relating to the COVID pandemic. In this episode of Naked Reflections, we want to broaden the discussion. In a recent Naked Scientist special, Angus Dalgleish, a cancer consultant at St George's Hospital in London, raised the subject of the collateral damage caused by the lockdown and by the subsequent local variations of that policy. This is a major concern, I believe, and it has been grossly overlooked that the number of patients who have missed screenings in the millions, the number of patients who have had their diagnosis of cancer deferred, and I have no personal cases and seen those who've been deferred, that they've been deferred, deferred to have their procedure, their biopsy, by two or three months during this pandemic. And then when they get it, they're now stage four cancer and they're going to last months, whereas they were curable. And there are thousands of cases like this. And it's not just cancer. The same goes for heart attacks, strokes, all these things, and that's before we get on to the mental health problems. The knock-on effect of this is enormous. And for those who like to uh, speak in figures, you know, we've only just got over 40-odd thousand people who died of this virus. In the first two months of the endemic, in April and May, the death rate was, of course, a lot higher. I mean, we had a crisis and the lockdown was the right thing to do. But after that was a control, the death rate actually went down. And so basically, this showed that the uh, endemic basically brought forward deaths that were going to happen anyway. The implications of Dr. Dalglish's intervention are profound. If we are to rethink the way we deal with the pandemic, we need to make some tough moral and ethical choices and go beyond the binary and banal mantra of saving lives versus saving the economy. And there's also the danger that being sceptical about scientific advice and government policy can morph into anti-vaccine conspiracy theory or even Trumpian hubris. With me to discuss the ethics of COVID policy are Baroness Rabbi Julia Neuberger, who is chair of UCL Hospital Foundation Trust, and Lord Jonathan Sumption, historian, Reith lecturer, and former Supreme Court judge. Let's begin with that starter for 10. How far in principle should the state get involved with personal autonomy? Jonathan. I don't think there's a single answer to that question. Um, There are people who believe that liberty is an absolute value which always trumps everything else. I'm not one of those people, but I do think that freedom and autonomy are basic conditions of human happiness and human creativity, and that to curtail them requires a very good case indeed. It requires not only that such a case should exist, but that it should be explained and supported by evidence. So, Jonathan, obviously I agree with you that liberty is not an absolute because as a society we have to operate as a whole and that means, if you like, preventing some people exercising their liberty to do certain things that are damaging to society as a whole or to individuals in particular. 
Uh, I am with you as well on um, if liberty is to be curtailed and autonomy is to be curtailed, then there needs to be a good reason for that. That reason not only needs to be explained, but needs to be, if you like, held dear by the people who take on that limitation of autonomy. And I think that where we ought to go with some of this is in saying to government and those who represent government in these issues that it isn't a question just of fiat. It's a question of taking the population with you, of explaining why it is we're doing or asking what we're asking and what indeed we hope that the result of this will be and that that's the reason for the limitation on autonomy. And as a society, we might then be very willing to accept it, provided we understood. I think that there is something unusual about the current way in which autonomy is being limited. Of course, human societies have always limited autonomy in the rather crude sense that, for example, we don't allow people to rob banks or kill each other. Um, We have identified certain norms of moral behavior which we forbid. But this is actually completely different because this is, in fact, the limitation uh, of autonomy by mass coercion affecting substantially the whole of society. That, I think, raises a very large number of issues which are not provoked by uh, the rules that we have against murder or robbing banks. But the main issue that it provokes is that there are obviously really serious collateral consequences. You have spoken about some of those consequences, but human societies are very, very complicated organisms, and you cannot usually suppress some significant aspects of human existence without inviting uh, sometimes unexpected, but sometimes very serious collateral effects on our, not just on our economy, but on our psychology, on our ability to relate to other people, on our relations between generations. And even if we were to confine ourselves just to the medical environment, uh, on our ability to diagnose and treat other illnesses, some of which are a great deal more serious and a great deal more mortal than COVID-19. One of the problems about the current approach has been uh, that it has been essentially reactive. It does not appear that at any stage the government has looked at the pattern as a whole. Now, I'm not suggesting it's easy to look at it as a whole. It requires very careful advanced planning. It requires the ability to look at all the implications at once and not just at how to deal with COVID-19. If we only address ourselves to COVID-19, we are riding for a fall. So, Jonathan, it seems to me that you're completely right in saying that one has to have a plan and look at all the ramifications of restrictions of this nature. I don't think any of us would dispute that. And it's quite clear that governments, not only our own government, but governments around the world, have panicked in their reactions. But I still retain the view that if governments explain 
and ask the population to own this, then you could say, and you might not, but you could say that it was legitimate for the government to ask this of people. However draconian the restrictions might be, if the population owned that, you might say it was ethically okay, even if you didn't necessarily agree with it politically. And I think it is worth making that point, because I think in other countries, whether or not we agree with the process, I think particularly in Germany, uh, the population have been led by Angela Merkel and have owned quite a considerable amount of the restrictions in a very different way from here. Yes, I mean, I, I agree with all that, although I think that when one says that the population needs to own uh, the the policy, that does not cater for the fact that the population may not be at one on this. Um, there are people who instinctively look to the state for protection, sometimes for more protection than the state is capable of providing. There are people who instinctively suspect or resent the state, and no amount of ownership is going to get rid of the fact that the more abrasive the measures are, the less likely they are to arouse general consensus around any point. But the basic point that you make is obviously right. And one of the striking things is uh, that those countries which have been most successful in dealing with this, even if their policies have been very different, have been countries that have treated their citizens like adults that have resorted to coercion only where it was really necessary, and that have addressed their citizens in moderate terms. It is, I think, very striking uh, that the authorities in Sweden and in Germany have pursued very different policies, but in both cases with substantial support from their citizen bodies, because in each case they have been addressed in a reasonable and moderate fashion. I wish that I could say the same uh, of all governments. I wish that I could say it about ours. The lockdown was originally justified uh, as being necessary, not in order to suppress the the virus, uh, but to delay the peak so as to give time for the NHS's intensive care capacity to catch up. Now, that was a rational explanation. Uh, And it was also an explanation that had built into it an exit route, an end plan, once the government had enabled the NHS's intensive care capacity to catch up. These measures would no longer be justified, at least on the basis that they had originally been justified. Something happened around the end of April and the beginning of May. It's not entirely clear what, but the object shifted to just stopping transmission generally, for a purpose that was never really very fully explained, given that suppression was frankly not an option, and without an an exit plan, at any rate, an exit plan that anybody ever identified, explained, or allowed to be understood. That was a very serious communication problem. It's one reason uh, for the decline in support. Another is that Although this was understood from a very early stage by the scientists, I think the public grasped in the course of the summer that this was in fact a relatively selective epidemic. The 
groups that were vulnerable to it have never been capable of exact definition, but broadly speaking, it was true to say that the mortality was overwhelmingly among people with a number of identifiable and quite serious clinical conditions. So, Jonathan, I think one of the things that it's worth saying is, although we think that the consequences of COVID-19 are very serious for particular groups in the population, I do think the growing evidence, which has come actually in the last couple of weeks, about long COVID and the numbers of people who get it and the extent to which that causes some heart damage are things that we should take quite seriously. So I suspect that saying it affects particular groups needs to be taken with a pinch of salt. I think for some people, this is more serious than we hitherto realised. And it's one of the reasons, I suppose, that the population perhaps ought to hear that this is pretty serious, although I completely accept your argument that other conditions are not being treated at the same same time as we're worried so, so greatly over COVID. I think that the equation, the balance that you have to draw between avoiding infections and avoiding damage to other aspects of human life is a different balance when you're looking at long COVID. Clearly, if you're looking at deaths, the weight that you give to the avoidance of transmission is substantially higher than if you're not looking at deaths. So I don't regard long COVID as a game changer intellectually. No, I'm not sure you're right. And I think I would argue that death is not the only really terrible outcome. In fact, for some people, it might be not so terrible at all. The outcome that is really terrible is completely life-changing injury, life-changing effects of a disease. Now, if they are right, I don't know whether they are, but if they are right in saying that something like one in 20 under 40s will get long COVID, and some of those will get very serious side effects, some not, and one in 10 of the over 40s, then I think we do need to take it a bit more seriously, because for some of those people, the outcome will be really serious. You know, they will not be able to carry on their normal jobs or whatever it is. Some of it will be permanent. You know, you'd be the first to agree that it is an illness that people are taking very seriously. But the question that seems to be raised is the NHS makes decisions every day about resource allocation, time, priority, new drugs, and you know this better than anybody, depending on stage of life and outlook. So it's an economic as well as an ethical question. But does it apply to COVID? Because I think one of the points I'm hearing Jonathan say is that it doesn't. This is an extraordinary situation where there isn't a balanced approach. Would you agree? I don't think I would agree that there isn't a balanced approach or whatever, because I don't think yet we know enough. That's part of the problem. If we knew more about it, I think we would be, and, and I think we may end up living with it. So we will know more about it. Then I think you can take a more balanced approach. I think when you don't know enough about it, you, you tend to go for a more extreme view. That's why I think you need to take your population with you if that's what you're going to do. But I think the real point here is we always make decisions about, you know, what drugs we're going to give, uh, how we allocate resources. But we don't do it on the hoof. It's considered. And the problem with some of this is that we haven't had the time even to consider it. Well, I think that some aspects of it, we have had the time. Um, it seems very surprising to me, given that active planning for a pandemic has been in progress for about 15 years, 
Um, it, it was top of the National Risk Register from the moment that it was first published in 2008. It's very surprising to me that there was not more careful consideration of all the options, of the implications of each of them, uh, and in particular of the economic implications, because albeit at a theoretical level, you can identify a range of non-pharmaceutical interventions and you don't know which of them might be appropriate. But what you can do uh, is work out in general terms what the economic implications of each of them would be. Um, one of the more remarkable things to emerge from the report of the relevant House of Commons committee back in July was that there appears to have been no cost-benefit analysis at all. And that seems to me to be a really very serious issue. The economic consequences arise from the fact that human societies have evolved a highly cooperative method uh, of work, which accounts for our considerable and still, I think, rising prosperity. But behind that, there is a fundamental fact that sociability is not just some sort of optional extra. It's not just icing on the cake. It is actually utterly fundamental to the whole way in which human beings live. We cannot simply be shut into a box without denying an aspect of our relations with each other, which is completely fundamental and goes well beyond the working environment. It's a matter of relations with family. It's a matter of our ideas about ourselves. The whole of the structure of our life has been built, for example, on the notion that physical proximity is necessary, not just for work, but for um, any number of other activities which are basic to the value that we place on being alive. I don't dispute that. But I do think that one has, to, one has to take account of the fact that, first of all, in the planning for a pandemic, they were looking at a flu-type condition, not a coronavirus-type condition. And that's a great mistake, in my view. But nevertheless, that was the case. So some of the thinking that we might have expected actually wasn't done. And the second thing is, of course, you have to take economic um, considerations into effect. And I don't think it's only about economic. And I actually don't think it's economic versus health. I don't think that's how it plays out. I think we should be taking into consideration the mental health effects of this, the other, if you like, the other societal implications of some of this, which are not necessarily about economics, some of them are, but they're about how people have been affected. And that includes the people who've been looking after people with COVID-19. So some of our intensive care doctors have said they've never seen anything like it, and they found it very distressing. And we had to provide quite a lot of psychological support. But also, I think that the mental health effects on the population of the sort of restrictions that have been imposed. I do think we need to look at more than economic effects. I think we need to look at social effects much more generally. And actually, that's one of the things that worries me considerably, particularly the effects on the very young and the very old. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Julia Neuberger and Jonathan Sumption. And we're discussing the ethics of COVID policy. Here's Philip Clark, a health economist at the University of Oxford, drawing attention to the generational issues of COVID policy on the Naked Scientist special. One of the interesting problems here is that, of course, this has mainly been about protecting older people 
but it's, of course, younger people who have been most affected economically. So I think one's got to think about ways where you can actually have some of the payment back from that debt rather than falling on income and income of the younger people in society, have it actually been falling on older people. And there are one's going to have to think about novel ways to collect taxes to pay for that debt in future, but also to put in place protections to stop the next pandemic. And that's another conversation we need to have. Just before the break, we touched on the old and the young who are suffering most from the pandemic. So we seem to be making the young pay for the pandemic. I mean, what should we be advising young people to do? Let's start with you, Jonathan. Well, I think that the generational imbalance is arguably the most serious issue of all. The young are themselves relatively, I emphasize relatively, unaffected by the disease. But like the mortality among people under 50 is, is really quite small. Um, and I think you are right to say that the young are being made to bear um, not the whole of the burden, but very much the greater part of it. The impact on the job market for people entering it for the first time is at the moment catastrophic. There is every reason to believe that it will remain catastrophic for a long time to come, long after COVID has been dealt with, if that ever happens. The educational impact uh, on um, particularly the closure of schools earlier in the year, but also the removal of the whole social dimension of education, which is a very fundamental part of it, uh, has been really very considerable. I think the intergenerational issues are some of the most serious issues that have arisen out of COVID. Uh, and whilst I think that we didn't have much alternative but to lock down and to encourage people to keep social distance, I think that the young, as Jonathan has said, undoubtedly are carrying the burden. I think it's right that they'll be carrying the tax burden. I think they've also carried the burden of how, if you like, they're living their lives. I'm particularly thinking of university students where I think they've had a double whammy because they were encouraged to go back to universities, uh, in fact, to their halls of residence, I think at least in part to save university finances. And you know, as a result of that, COVID started spreading amongst them and then they were locked down. Well, actually, in that case, they'd have been better to stay home with mum and dad and do their learning online if we think that it's right to keep those distances and to, to prevent them getting it. And I do think there's an argument, Jonathan, that you haven't addressed, which is the extent to which we're all in it together or the extent to which you can keep one generation completely away from another. And I think it's actually quite difficult to keep one generation totally away from another or one group totally away from another. And if you want to look for an example, the ideal example is in Israel, where the ultra-Orthodox community, the Haredi community, had a very high incidence of COVID-19. And people thought that you could actually sort of barricade them into B'nai B'rath. But actually, it turned out that, you know, whether one thought that they were having contact or not, they actually were. And it spread. And that led to the incredible spread of COVID-19 amongst the rest of the Israeli population. So I think when you say some people could shield, we could shield and prevent the young having to shield. I'm not absolutely convinced that's true. And I think we might have to say, like it or not, we're all in it together. But I would certainly criticise the way that the young and particularly students have been treated, I would certainly say that the uh, implications for the 16 to 24 year olds in the job market are appalling. 
And I do think that there will have to be ways in which the old have to pay more tax. I think they will have to. And I think you're right that the old have been favoured. I have another view, which is, I think, just worth airing, which is that we're asking older people to protect themselves and to keep away. But actually, some older people, particularly older people who live alone and are really quite elderly, might say, look, I'll take the risk, but I'd rather see my grandchildren. And I think there your autonomy argument comes back into play. I don't want to be put into intensive care. I will take the risk. And I do think we need to listen to older people who are finding life at the moment really difficult with major mental health effects. Yes, I mean, I think we are agreed on that. The reason why it is not possible totally to shield the old and the vulnerable, I mean, I think it is possible to do it, uh, but at a price which many of the old and vulnerable are, for perfectly understandable reasons, unwilling to pay. They feel that it is a matter for them uh, whether they expose themselves to the risk of infection from their grandchildren. And morally, I find it very hard to disagree with that. The very fact that we are having this conversation suggests that we're not in it together because this is a virus that is but selectively attacks different groups. I'm not suggesting that the different groups are completely self-contained. There's clearly a lot of overlap. But the reason why we're not in it together is that we do not have the same degree of vulnerability and we do not have the same burden to carry. And that's why we're discussing the problem about the young. I mean, to take you up on one point, Julia, um, it is perfectly true that we could have uh, suggested to all university students that they should do their learning at a distance from their homes. But I think that one should not underestimate the damage that that would do to the learning experience. In the first place, my experience at university, and I think it's also the experience of younger people, my, my children, for example, is that you learn at least as much from your contemporaries as you do from your teachers, often more. The problem about distance learning is that it is fundamentally isolating. The experience is a lot more than simply in ingesting facts. Its sociability is an essential part of it. I was simply saying that the only model that we look at is one where students largely live in halls of residence. Of course, actually, in other European countries, that's not the case. In other countries around the world, that's not the case. I completely agree about the need for socialising for younger people. It's particularly when you're a student. It's when you learn everything. I also had an amazing experience at university. But I think that if we regard ourselves as all in it together, which I think you're to somewhat to some extent anyway disputing, but if you think we're all in it together, if you think that actually it is beholden on students to either self-isolate if they do get it or try not to get it, then it would have been better, not ideal, but better for them to have stayed at home and done their studying online than to go to halls of residence where we knew this would happen and then be forced to self-isolate. And I, I actually think that that has been really, really shameful, I must say. As we're coming towards a close, I'd like to ask both of you about the policy and the right way to determine government policy in this area. Is government fiat the right way? Or if not, 
where does authority arise as far as COVID policy is concerned? Jonathan. I can conceive of circumstances where mass coercion may be justified. I think that whether it is in the case of COVID-19 is essentially a value judgment. There's no metric that will enable you to give a conclusive answer to it. A value judgment that I make is that it has not been worth it. So, Julia, Jonathan says it's not been worth it. What do you think? I don't think we know yet is part of the problem. I think that there are circumstances where government fiat is allowable. I think, you know, in cases of war, for instance, we end up thinking we will have to do what the government says. And sometimes the government's in power for a very long time. Um, I think here, my criticism is of the way the government took us with them. I do think, and Jonathan has made this point, I do think if the government had treated us like adults, if it had even allowed some discussion, I don't know whether it's citizens' assemblies or just simple discussion programs and phone-in programs, you know, all sorts of ways of getting people to discuss. But if we'd been treated like adults, I think it would have been easier. I'm sure this discussion will continue and continue and continue. But for now, I'd like to thank my distinguished guests, Baroness Rabbi Julia Neuberger and Lord Jonathan Sumption. We'd love to hear from you at nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know where we're going wrong, or better still, where we're going right. If you'd like to catch up with our back catalogue, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com reflections. I'll be back with more guests next week. <laughs>